Well, this year we're working our way through the book of Revelation, and today we come to chapter 4, and really today we're getting on the roller coaster. So, um, in fact, uh, really, what we start to learn today is going to be the foundation for the rest of the whole book. So let's read chapter 4 of Revelation. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I've broken this up into six sections, and we're just going to walk through those six sections today. The first one is the open door into heaven in verse 1. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So, in my opinion, this is where things really begin to get exciting in the book of Revelation. This is where it begins. 
All the visions in the rest of the book flow out of this two-part vision of heaven in chapters 4 and 5. And this vision begins with an open door and an invitation to come. And in this we see that there is another reality, another place, if you will, another dimension. And every once in a while, God opens the door for us to be able to see in. We see it in other places in the scriptures. And John hears what he says is the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, which is a reference back to chapter 1, verse 10, where he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And the voice says to John, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So he's invited to come up and see this heavenly place. Sometimes we go places or see things which change us forever. I love in West Side Story, Tony and Maria have this kind of encounter with each other. And Tony sings to her, I saw you and the world went away. Paul had two experiences like this. First, when he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. And then, in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, I was caught up into the third heaven and heard things which cannot be told. Well, this is one of those experiences for John, and hopefully for us as well. And along with this invitation to come, John is told by the voice, I will show you what must take place after this. So he's not only going to see something that is, but he's going to be told about what will be. But don't get this second part wrong about the things that he will see which are to take place. This doesn't mean that the book of Revelation can be expected to give us Specific details of future events, as some have taken it. Jesus already has told us much about what is going to take place in the future. For instance, he said, Those who mourn will be comforted. The meek will inherit the earth. The last shall be first. Every valley will be exalted and every hill made low. Humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God, and in his own good time, he will lift you up. I am with you to the end of the age. The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. Jesus and his apostles told us that the way things are is not the way they will remain. The world will come to an end when he returns. They give us few details, but still they told us what's to come. And there is no promise here in this vision that we're going to get any more specific details than that. The second section of this vision, 
is the throne that John sees in verses 2 and 3. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat before, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. When I was in college, I took a class entitled Cosmology, which is the theory of the universe, what it looks like, how it came to be, what makes it tick. Well, here we are given a biblical cosmology. First of all, invisible to mankind on earth, there is a control room in the universe. And the most obvious feature of that control room is that at the center of everything is God on his throne, seeing everything, commanding everything, and being worshipped. Now, most mankind, of course, are completely unaware of this control room like a child flying on an airplane who has no idea about the cockpit up front where the pilots and the equipment and the dashboard are being carefully manipulated to get them to their flight. They're oblivious, but yet it's there. There are a number of places in the Bible where we see this throne room of God. You see it in, in Isaiah chapter 6. You see it in the amazing vision that Micaiah the prophet is given in 1 Kings 22. In chapter 5, we see this, that this is where Jesus is. We say that Jesus is in our hearts. We say that Jesus is with us to the end of the age. But in those ways, Jesus is acting through his spirit. Locationally, Jesus is in the throne room of God, sitting at the Father's right hand. And this vision introduces us to the main location for the whole rest of the book of Revelation. One thing the churches of Revelation 2 and 3 that the letters went to, they, one thing they had in common was their need to conquer, their need to stand firm in the faith in the midst of a hostile and difficult world. And here in this vision, the Lord gives to his people what they need to know if they're going to conquer. We need to know about this control room. We need to know about its relationship to the world that we live in. It's common for people to summarize the book of Revelation by saying, God wins. But I think the better summary is, God rules. That's why the vision begins with a throne. We live in a world which smells of chaos 
and injustice and randomness and tragedy and wrongness. But the fact is there is one seated on the throne. But as God sits on his throne, we see not just his power here, but his beauty. Not just his authority, but his mercy. For he who sat there, it says, had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So this is... There's, a, there's beauty being manifested here as well, and mercy in the rainbow. Almost every time the word rainbow occurs in the scriptures, there's a reference to Noah in that story. It, it is uh, safe when you see a rainbow in the scriptures to connect it with the story of Noah and the, the uh, promise of peace that God gave through the rainbow. When God created the world, he made most of the planet rather ordinary. Dirt and rocks and stuff. But he made some things particularly beautiful. He made flowers, for instance, which illustrate people blossoming in beauty and then fading and dying. He also made precious stones. But generally in the Bible, precious stones represent heavenly things. They have glory and beauty, but their glory doesn't fade like the glory of a flower. The third of the six sections is the 24 elders. Verses 4, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And as I said, it's important for us to realize that, you know, the book of Revelation is a continuous story. And the characters we're introduced here are permanent characters. You know, you can watch a series on TV. And the first episode, you have no idea which characters are the characters who are going to be in every episode from the beginning to the end. And which characters are just going to be there for that one episode. Well, in this story, these characters, I can tell you because I've read the rest of the book, they're permanent characters. They are characters you're going to find throughout the rest of the book. And so here's, besides the one on the throne, we have the 24 elders. They are pictured as falling down before God worshiping, both here and throughout the rest of the book. So who are these 24 elders? Well, most think that they are the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, plus the 12 apostles. These two 12s are identified together in Revelation 21 in the description of the walls of the New Jerusalem. So it, it makes sense that they are the 24 elders. 
So the 24 elders then are the leaders of the people of God. The Old Testament and New Testament. And in that sense they represent all of God's people. It's significant that they sit on thrones and that they wear white and that they have crowns of gold. And they're said to do that not only here but through the rest of the book. And this is significant because through the letters to the seven churches, believers were continually, repeatedly promised that if they conquered, they would be given crowns and white clothing and dominion. Now, to remind them of what their future looks like if they conquer, They are given a glimpse into heaven to see that those who have gone before them, who are already in the heavenly places, indeed have been granted crowns and white clothing and authority. The fourth section is the lightning, the seven torches, and the sea of glass. Verses 5 and the first half of verse 6. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So you have three things here. The lightning, the torches, and the sea of glass. So let's look at those individually. First of all, the interesting thing about the lightnings, the flashes of lightning, the rumblings, and the peals of thunder, is that, again, they are characters that continue on through the story. We find them this repeated almost exactly the same phrase three more times in the book of Revelation in chapter in 8, 5, 11, 19 and 16, 18 each of which is at the conclusion of a series of seven mighty judgments poured out upon the earth so it seems that this phrase describing the throne of God and from the throne of God are coming these flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder indicates that all of these judgments that are poured out upon the earth ultimately come from the throne of God. Now the seven torches. And torches... Um, the same word and this sounds strange to us as Americans but Englishmen find it very normal same word as the word lamp for they don't call English people don't call a flashlight a flashlight they call it a torch and uh, we go torch that's not a torch (laughs) but that's what they call it Um, so the word for lamp in the Old Testament Hebrew and the word for torch are the same word. Um, The first thing that comes to mind here is the seven torches, the connection with the seven lampstands that we saw in the vision of Revelation 1, which represent the seven churches. 
Each lampstand, remember, represents a church. And the flame that's burning on the top of the lampstands represents the Holy Spirit upon that church. Well, the concept between the torch or the lamp and the lampstand is really the same, even though the words are different. And then there's a vision in Zechariah 4 with seven lamps or torches in it as well. And when it explains the meaning of that vision in Zechariah 4 6, the meaning of the vision is the Spirit upon the people. So it seems reasonable to connect this with the seven lampstands the seven torches, and the seven lampstands. So, if this is correct, then the seven lamps are the same as the seven lampstands, the same as the seven churches, which is, as we said, all the churches, because the number seven means complete, each burning with the fire of the Holy Spirit, just like at Pentecost, when each believer, the fire came upon them, the tongue of fire rested on their heads, Or something like this. So, in this vision, Jesus, you know, earlier we saw him walking among the lampstands, but now they are burning in heaven before the throne of God. Somehow, uh, the church is not just down here, but it's up there. And I know that that sounds strange to us, but this is what the New Testament teaches us. Ephesians 1.20 says that when Christ was raised from the dead, he was seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. The right hand of God in the heavenly places. So he went there, and he's there. But then a few verses later in Ephesians 2.6, it says that we have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. So... There is a sense in which the church isn't just down here. And I don't just mean that the church of those who have gone before us, but the church, even as it is on earth, is also has a heavenly reality to it. And is there with Christ in the heavenly places. Then there's the crystal sea that's also before the throne. The idea here is a body of water that is so still that it looks like glass. And this makes us think of two things. First of all, there was a large brass basin just outside Solomon's temple filled with water that was, that was uh, some, depicted something about God or the presence of God. You can see that in 1 Kings 7. The second thing it makes us think of is when Jesus stilled the Sea of Galilee. When there was a great storm, and he said, peace be still, and it suddenly and completely became still. In the book of Revelation, storms rage on the earth, while in heaven everything is calm before the Lord. He's the one who stills the chaotic waters of the sea. 
That seems to be the significance of this sea of glass that is before him. We have then in this section three elements. The lightning from above, the seven lamps or the seven torches before the throne, and the crystal sea also before the throne. The striking thing to me about these three is the contrast between the violent fierceness of the lightning and thunder and the calm peacefulness of the crystal sea. In the presence of God, you see, there is perfect peace that reigns. While on earth, he allows havoc to be wreaked. And then you have the church, which is in a sense in both worlds. It lives on the earth, and so it experiences the thunder and the lightning and the storm, but it's also before the throne of God in heaven, where it is called to rest in the peace of the one who is on the throne. The fifth section is the four living creatures. The four living creatures. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And the most remarkable thing that hits us when we read this is just how weird it is. Full of eyes in front and behind, and it says that twice. And then the first one like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with a face of a man, the fourth like an eagle in flight, and each of them has six wings. Now, the text doesn't tell us what these four, four living creatures are. They seem to be some kind of angelic beings who were servants of God and worshippers of God and of the Lamb in the next chapter. But their strangeness may be an important part of the point here. There is another world. And though this world is invisible to us and somewhat foreign to us, it is very real and very important to us. When you go to a different country or live in a different culture, It's hard, and it's humbling. We don't know how things work there. We don't know how we're supposed to act. It makes us feel insecure. And when we're reading along in the book of Revelation and come to this description of these four living creatures, suddenly we say to ourselves, we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. This is one of the reasons that we're not comfortable with the book of Revelation. It takes us out of our comfort zone. We are introduced to things which are strange to us. We feel confused. But 
Jesus never promised us a life of familiarity, a life of cozy predictability. And if we're serious about following Jesus, we've got to be ready to be taken to unknown and unfamiliar places. And if we can't trust God enough to lead us out of our comfort zone and introduce us to some strange characters, we're going to miss out on seeing him and being with him. In my opinion, safety and security are two of the biggest idols of American Christians, including us. I think this is one of the reasons it's hard for many Christians even to really look forward to heaven. Because even though Jesus is there, it still involves dying and so much unknown. As you might know, three times my wife and I have traveled to West Africa to visit our daughter Michelle and her family. And I can tell you, there's a lot of that is very strange to us when we go there, and even scary. But you can't really know someone until you see them on their home turf, where they live and where they work. There's no substitute for seeing someone in their element. For this very reason, we're, we're traveling in April to Macau, China. To see our daughter Abigail. Well, this strange place in this vision, this is where Jesus came from. This place is not strange to him, this is where he lives. This vision reveals Jesus' home turf. These living creatures are presumably his friends, his neighbors. He made this earth his home for a few decades, but then he returned to where he came from. We're given a lot of information about Jesus when he walked on earth, because that's what we mainly need to know. But the book of Revelation is the primary source that we have about Jesus in his heavenly home. When you get to know a person's friends, you get to know that person better. And woe to us if we say, no, I only want to know Jesus the way he was when he was on our home turf. I don't want to see him in his own context. The fact is, this context is our future home. He came to our place, but later he's going to take us to his place. It has to be enough that he's going to be there with us. Every time so far in my world travels that I've gone to a place completely different than where I come from, there has been someone there who really understands me and really understands the place I am. And that makes all the difference in the world. 
I've still not had one of those experiences where I'm suddenly planted somewhere where I have no connection and I'm just on my own. But we're going to find that Jesus is going to be there as well and many others as well. I, have, I know that Jesus hasn't yet been mentioned in this vision. But that will change in chapter 5. The sixth and final section of our passage this morning is the worship. First, second half of verse 8 through 11. It says, day and night, the four living creatures never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Well, one of the, this is one of the striking things about this whole passage is this worship. Why is this worship of God so over the top in this vision? Well, the reason is because these creatures, whoever they are, they really get the one who's on the throne. They understand who God is in a way that none of us have ever been able to. We see God through, like through a dirty window. They see him face to face and so... Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And my friends, I think this is here to wake us up, to elbow us about our worship. Just as the worship of the four living creatures provokes the worship of the 24 elders. So the worship of the four living creatures and the worship of the 24 elders is meant to provoke us to worship. How many of you have ever seen the old movie Ben-Hur? Very good. Well, one of my favorites, but... Uh, One of the techniques that that movie uses is that, as you might have uh, observed, is that it never shows the face of Jesus. Jesus is a very uh, big figure in the movie, but you never see his face. You see him from the back, but you never see his face. But the way that they portray Jesus is through the faces of those who do see him. That's what you see. You see people seeing and reacting to Jesus. And through that, you, in some sense, see the face of Jesus in a way that that, uh, if it was just an actor's face, he just couldn't portray the, the power 
that, he, that they're seeing in the, in the face of Jesus. So it's a brilliant technique. Well, and I think that's very similar to what's happening in this vision. The one on the throne is never described except for saying he had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, which certainly doesn't give us a whole lot. Instead, we see him through the reaction of those who are around him. The creatures give glory and honor and thanks. The elders fall down before him and worship him. They cast their crowns before him and they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and are created. Their reaction tells us what this God on his throne is like. And this is real worship. For they really see him. And on earth, a church's worship is most real when instead of copying a rock concert or a talk show or the worship of this church or that church, we seek to enter into this worship that is described in Revelation 4 and in the rest of Scripture that takes place in the heavenly places. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea, cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, who wert and art and evermore shall be. But there is still more to be said. The picture here is awesome. God on his throne, seen in his transcendence. But next week, Jesus gets introduced into the picture as well, in a spectacular way. We'll see that in chapter 5.